Welcome to Arrested DevOps, episode 19, Dev2Ops. I am your co-host, Matt Stratton. You can find me on Twitter, at Matt Stratton. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, then you must be pretty cool. You can find about joining their cool cloud services team at 10thMagnitude.com. We want to let everybody know that the Chef Community Summit is coming up October 2nd and 3rd in Seattle, or if you're on Europe or other continents. Um, or you like the UK in general. Oh, yes. October 15th and 16th in London. Use the discount code ArrestedDevOps for 10% off your registration at ArrestedDevOps.com slash ChefCommunity. Also, speaking of conferences, registration is available for the first ever DevOps Days Chicago. Arrested DevOps listeners can get 10% off their registration with the code ADO10. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash DevOps Days Chicago for all the details. So we all know that being on-call sucks. But what if there was a tool out there that allowed you to route incidents to the right team at mentioned specific people to ask for help and hop in to chat with your team from an easy-to-decipher incident timeline that gave you full context of what was happening? That tool is VictorOps, and they are different. From setting up global on-call rotations to creating a post-mortem report, VictorOps is there with you through every step of the incident lifecycle. Our real-time collaboration platform helps your team solve problems faster. Sign up for a free 14-day trial to see how they're making on-call suck less. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash VictorOps to sign up. This podcast is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring service for dev and ops teams who work collaboratively to write and run applications on highly scalable infrastructures. Datadog brings together system metrics, events, and alerts from over 80 common infrastructure tools to provide teams with graphing, correlation, and data analytics. Datadog is available for a 14-day trial for free at arresteddevops.com slash datadog19. So in last week's episode, Mike Fiedler pointed out that basically nobody ever starts out wanting to be a sysadmin, and we all find our way here some other, in some other direction. So tonight we're talking to some people who started their life doing dev stuff and somehow got suckered into learning about ops. So we're calling this show Dev to Ops. All apologies to Damon Edwards. This has nothing to do with DTO, but it's a great name. Well, so just so everybody knows, Matt busted my chops because apparently my ad-libbing sucks and uh, I don't vary up our introductions very much. So I wrote some very special introductions just for Matt for tonight's episode. So we'd like to welcome Aaron Blythe. Aaron, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I've been working in software for about 12 years now. I work for Cerner Corporation. We're always hiring. Uh, we're trying to transform healthcare every day in every way, so it's an excellent field to, to be in. Initially, like the biggest frustration for me, for years I was writing software, and like we'd get client issues, and it would be nothing like our development environment. So the big thing, like the move towards ops, is software has changed quite a bit. And uh, now we can actually stage like production a lot more. We, we have big data um, things that we're working on now. So exciting stuff. Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. We'd also like to thank for joining us John Smith. And, uh, and would you be so kind, John, as to inform us who you are and what you do? Sure. Being kind is not really my thing, but I'm a senior consultant at uh, 10th Magnitude. I also started life doing development. I've kind of worked on to uh, a lot of operations stuff. So, yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Uh, I probably said the same thing again because I didn't ad lib what I was. I didn't write what I was going to say after people introduced themselves. So, sorry, Matt. You are so fired. Your your webcam is so bad. It reminds me of Max Headroom. Nice. I guess I need a new webcam. This is just all a trick for Trevor to try to get new crap. I just bought him a new microphone yesterday. Now he wants a new webcam. Well, Matt, your voice doesn't match your video, so I expect a group of ninjas to broken, break into your hotel room or something and start a big karate war. Yay, hotel Wi-Fi. Well, finally, now that we've neglected him, who are you, Nate Burleson? Hello. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm also a senior consultant at 10th Magnitude. Started software development about... 18 years ago, back in the internet boom when uh, Microsoft technologies were new, you know, I'm talking classic ASP, that kind of stuff, 
Um, a lot of times developers were forced to dive into the server itself. Um, it wasn't by choice, it was by necessity. There weren't always sysadmins around, so a lot of times we had to go in and administer IS, etc. So that was my first real introduction to sort of the ops side of things. And as of late, I'm doing some automation in Azure, and I look forward to talking about it. Excellent. There, I said a different word than awesome, even though... Very awesome good, Trevor. We're very proud of you. So I, I'm thinking the first thing, I know we just kind of did introductions, but kind of thinking about more of where, like, I'd like to hear a little more details about, like, for what was your first exposure to operational stuff? Like, when you really had to get your hands dirty like a, a sysadmin. For me, it was, uh, we moved, I moved into a Rails e-commerce a- application that we have here, and we started deploying the code by ourselves as the development team to just see what it was like and, and have, like, kind of a new challenge. So I was running a bunch of bash commands. Like, I learned bash kind of on the fly as I was building our production environment. And I always felt like there had to be a, a better way. So we started looking at that time. This was five years ago. We started looking at Capistrano. And then from there, we found out about Chef. And since then, it's been on. We, uh, we, built, we built a team where we do the DevOps type of thing. We, we both write the code and we uh, actually deploy the code. So Yeah, I don't know. I, I think... You know, Nate, you mentioned it before, but I think we kind of came up in about the same time period, right? Classic ASP and early uh, internet stuff. And uh, it was just kind of a natural progression. It wasn't so clear cut, I don't think, between operations and development. You, you had to know the platform that you were developing on. And I think, you know, the first time I started doing, I guess, what would be pure operations type work was because there were some problems on SQL Server and our application wasn't performing the way it was supposed to when I started digging into the performance on the SQL server and doing some administration on it. And I don't know, it seems like there's a this kind of artificial division now where it's either operations or it's development, although that's kind of going away again. And I think, you know, years ago, it, I don't think it was so cut and dry. I mean, you had to do what you had to do to get your work done. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember, uh, John, you and I had a conversation one time, or I've, I've seen you say this before, I kind of love, which is you're like, hey, I've been doing this DevOps thing for a long time, but we used to just call it working. Yeah, no, that's really true. I mean, if you think about it, really, before there was pure operations, you had programmers and you had systems programmers, right? The people that took care of the systems were also programmers. And, you know, I, I don't know when it became operations people don't know how to write any code, but that's not the background that I came from. You know, it seemed like everybody knew how to at least write some sort of scripts, if nothing else, and I don't know, it, it wasn't so divided, I don't think. I, I will say that when I first started my career, I, I first started in Perl, and so at that time there were plenty of Unix sysadmins, you know, this is when Linux was fairly new, but BSD and other, other flavors, I guess they were at the time, I don't even recall. The Unix sysadmins actually taught me a lot of Perl tricks, so kind of back in the day, and, and I think that's still true today, the quote-unquote sysadmins back at that time were pretty good programmers. I mean, they really knew how to work the command line and some of the the, the programming languages, et cetera, to automate their jobs. So as John stated, I think this division is sort of modern and somewhat artificial. I do know that sysadmins didn't want programmers to touch the systems very much for fear that we didn't know what we were doing, which was true. But I do feel that largely this, this division that's that's come up in the last 15, 10 or 15 years is really artificial. Definitely, I, I, I can I can see that because I think that, and this was one of the things we talked about a little bit last week when we we're talking about sysadmins. We talked about kind of the idea between computer operator, you know, system sysops and sysadmins, and it seems like in a lot of ways, like kind of that move to being more of the administrator versus the operator was a place where some of that distinction started to change. A little bit. So I'm interested to know. So, so again, you know, uh, so John, John, just back. I mean, John and I have worked together on and off for years. And like, it's funny because I've always known John as a systems guy. Like, I didn't know John started his life as a developer until he told me that like a few months ago. And I was like, oh, really? Well, that explains a lot in a good way. <laughs> that wasn't snarky. <laughs> that was like that explains why you're so good at certain things. No, it's um, cool. So I'm. I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you, so being kind of classically trained, if you would, for lack of a better term, with a development background, like, what do you think are the kind of skill that, you know, where, where's that applicable to doing more of the ops stuff? Because, like, John, you, like, when I worked with you before, I mean, you was, we were system engineers in a financial institution. It was all back office crap, you know. There was no programming except for all the cool Perl scripts you wrote. 
So, yeah, I was going to say, like, but there was, because there's always mm -hmm. a place to automate things and always has been. And I started off as a developer because I, you know, I went to school and learned how to write code, right? And when I came out of school, the first job I have actually, I actually was a consultant, and the first job I had was actually doing testing, writing tests. I did some work writing programs, and then I did some work in infrastructure. And I, I guess I, I never saw them as being too distinctly different. From a development background, right? I was saying, like, where is that applicable? And so your thing was like, well, hey, I'm always writing scripts. But just thinking yeah. about the, the besides automation that you do, being an ad, sysadmin and being an ops person, it's not just about automating, too. There's task-oriented things. There's a different kind of oh, way of absolutely. approaching it. So I'm curious, like, what skills or background, how does that apply? I mean, the, everything fits together, right? It's just layer upon layer of abstraction. And the, the deeper you know into those abstractions, the better you're able to do your job, the better you can troubleshoot things. So you're right. It's, it's not just automating things, although, you know, that's a big part of it, being able to do, you know, 10 things in, instead of one with the same amount of time. But it, it also gives you insight into how things work and how the pieces fit together. Uh, I think the more you can learn about, computers, the better you can do your job when you work with computers. The more you can learn about the business, the better you're going to be working with that business. So people tend to, I think, kind of pigeonhole themselves sometimes, you know, they, people sometimes complain that they're stuck in whatever they're doing, but you have to find a place to uh, apply those things. Uh, and as far as having a development background, my knowledge of computers starts with that background that I had. You know, I, I took assembler in college and learned about the hardware by by programming it right and everything else is everything's just a, a the next layer of abstraction on top of the up top of the previous one yeah i totally agree with that seems like on the development side like being more classically a developer um even still the thing that we've been doing is going and comparing our processes from our development teams for years we kind of did uh waterfall and then we moved into scrum and agile and kind of do the scrummer fall thing now the operations teams that we work with are kind of like ITIL based. At the base layer, they, they're kind of the same thing. You want to get people reviewing um, the pro reviewing it to get quality out of it. But the big thing that we've seen uh, between like the development team teaching the ops team is sometimes like code reuse. Like we're doing the same task over and over. Let's find a, a common way to do this. And the big thing we've gotten from the ops team is just like this vast knowledge. Like when I was doing development in more of a cookie-cutter type of situation a few years back. The development environment was set up for me, and I was just kind of... I never really knew what how to set it up. I couldn't set the whole thing up from scratch. I was just supposed to write code that worked in that system, test that code, and then we would, we would ship packages to, to one of the many domains it went to. I think it starts, it starts with a necessity. So, you know, when I was working for Dave, uh, who was on the, the podcast, I think, two episodes ago... You know, we'd be working with this sensor fusion system, and one of the systems wouldn't be responding. And we'd have to re-image the whole machine, and we'd have to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to do that? I mean, I remember back when I really had no clue what I was doing in IIS, and I manually changed the permissions on the WW root folder and completely blew up IIS, and then I had to figure out how to fix it, <laughs> which was a fun challenge, but I, I think that kind of the transition from dev to ops is kind of starts with necessity. You know, you see something that you need to automate because you're tired of doing it. You see something that doesn't work the way you think it should, so you investigate it, and eventually you figure out it's not your software, it's something else, and if there's not a person who can immediately facilitate that change, and you have the power to do, it, to do that change, you become the vector for that change and start the transition. True. One of the things that I think is, is interesting when we think about on an operational side, and I, I know that pretty much we've all kind of, I think, done some config management stuff here. I, I, I know one of the connecting points of most of us is Chef, actually. And so thinking about infrastructure as code, you know, Aaron, you brought this up and you said, hey, one of the things that was great was being able to kind of bring some of this rigor around application development to the, the ops folks who, who weren't as familiar with that. And uh, Adam Jacob has a great quote where he said, you want to really see cultural change. See what happens to sysadmins when you tell them they have to do a code review before they make an infrastructure change. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested to say, like, so what do you think is one of those, what, besides that, like, what are some of those real big cultural differences when you look at someone who didn't come up with a dev background that's getting into kind of this DevOps piece when you've interacted with, either because you've interacted with it or you just would speculate some of the more interesting challenges around that? 
one of the most interesting things that we've been doing culturally lately is explaining that uh, on our development teams, about 50% of our time is spent reviewing someone else's code or testing someone else's code. Like, you develop half the time, and then you review or test someone else's so we can push quality out the door. And some of the operations people that we've worked with, they're like, are you serious? Like, you spend that much of your time? Like, that just doesn't even seem feasible. How do you have so much time? And so, like, in Lean, what we talk about a lot is, like, you've got to slow down to be able to, to speed up because you're going you're gonna to pay that time mm-hmm. somewhere. So that's, that's been an interesting, like, eye-opening thing. They're like, so culturally, I think that's probably been the, the biggest central point that we've had the most discussions in the last couple months. Yeah, I remember, Nate, I don't know if you remember, actually, I had, I remember distinctly, like, looking for guidance from you, you know, a few months ago around code review, especially, where I was like, so I know code review is a thing, but I don't know how to do it. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember that, uh, that conversation. I think, John, you might have been there, too. And actually, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what would be your, uh, around that, because I think that's a thing that's like, again, you know, Aaron, you alluded to it as well, that that's like super foreign to ops type people. So like, what advice would you have? Or like, what's a way to kind of ease that curve? I think first and foremost, the first thing you do is don't immediately say no. You know, I've known plenty of people who I've worked with who you come up to and say, hey, we need to make change X, uh, and change X needs to be facilitated by change Y. And the person just will turn around and say, nope, we can't do it. No. Is that, is that in your in your code review? Because that was like the real... Because I still don't completely understand how you do that. So maybe I'm asking you guys to teach me how to do a code review. How to do a code review? I don't know. I, I think I know what it means, but no one's ever shown me. I'm, I'm going to admit that I'm dumb. I mean, code review is totally subjective if you don't have something to review it against. Yeah, yeah. And there's no, I mean, different people do code reviews different ways, right? Right. Like, in the past, I've been mostly. It's been kind of a, we didn't review every piece of code, but we would pick somebody's stuff to review for style to make sure that that was right and to make sure that uh, everybody understood what was going on and, and would, you know, on a weekly basis or so, walk through some people's code. Um, I've also seen people have just review their code kind of in an offline fashion, right? Like be responsible for reviewing another person's commits before they get committed. So I mean, there's no there's no right or wrong way. Well, there's probably a wrong way. There's always a wrong way. Part of it, too, is taking the things that we kind of have agreed upon as a culture, like on some level, depending on where you work, some of that culture might be some of the clean code methodologies. So, you know, when you look at your code, you should be able to, you know, the method name should be... uh, English so that you understand what the method is actually doing. You know, it should not be polymorphic. It should be, you know, it should serve a single function. You know, you want to kind of, there's these things that we've agreed upon and been introduced to that you kind of work into that. On top of that, like I was trying, like I was saying before, you may have a code review document, or, or not a code review document, but a code specification document where you say, you know, hopefully nobody does this anymore, but, you know, all methods must be prefaced by function or something that you've agreed upon as a team that you have to do as part of the code because of whatever reason you have to back it up. Now, I think all those decisions should be discussable. You know, there should never be anything that's like, oh, uh, all our functions are going to start with the word function because otherwise if the CEO looks at the code, he'll, he won't know what's going on. Adding the word function is not going to make it any clearer the CEO, we should talk about why that's really relevant. And at that point, it may be we just don't go back and remove all the other functions that say function in them, but going forward, we name our functions something more understandable, like combine users or something, whatever your function may be doing. Add. So, okay, so for an ops person, I just went, I just heard womp, 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 function, womp, 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 polymorphic, womp, womp, womp. So I'm like, but if I understand it correctly, and again, I'm really, I'm only like five percent being an asshole to you right now, Trevor. <laughs> I'm really saying I want to understand. You're basically saying the point of the code review is to say like, okay, so like I wrote, you know, a chef recipe, and I'm like, and John is my code reviewer, so he's going to look at it and say, first of all, I would guess, and this is just like he's going to make sure that it's passed. If we say that it, that I have to test my crap, right? He's going to make sure it's t- passed the tests. So he's a human gate for that, right? Right. Maybe. And then also he's going to look at it and go like, okay, this is just ugly, right? Or this isn't clear. Because I would think that would be a big piece of it too, right? If he doesn't understand it, 
That's a that's exact sign, right? Yeah. That's exact. John, you're super a lot staticky, of by the way. The biggest change I've seen over the years is, like, I remember when I first started writing code is we would print off, like, reams of paper and get in a room and, like, review code that way. Then we'd throw stuff out on network drives and do some diff tools and stuff. The tools have gotten amazing in the last few years. You can do inline stuff on GitHub. We use an Atlassian project called Crucible. So I can I can say this one line where you left a line after your rm-rf slash, and then you had the rest of the, the stuff. Like, yeah, we don't want to run that on production. That's going right. to cause a bit of a problem. So I can I can hone in on here's the pieces that we, we want to make sure we get cleaned up before we move on. Largely, it's an accountability thing. You may see somebody who came up with, you know, the solution that they provide you uses a pattern that doesn't match what the rest of the project is using. So you might see someone switching between different design patterns. Like there's a project I'm working on now where there's a hundred design patterns for no reason because the person who wrote the code had no one to be accountable to except themselves. And it's just, it's a hairball and it is com it's collapsing under its own weight. There are people in this room who know who I'm talking about, and so I'm not going to go any further. Yeah, I mean, as far as code reviews go, there's no better way to make sure the code is readable than to make sure somebody reads it other than you. And I think that's exactly. a big part of what it is, really. I, I mean, you can have a linter pick through a lot of this stuff, but you have to agree on what the lint rules are first. Absolutely. And you iron those I mean, things out at a code standards. review. And when you're talking about just the way your code's laid out, Chef, as an example, Matt, one of the things that we review in code reviews with Chef is that you're using attributes appropriately and that we're using them the same way, that we're following the same patterns so that everybody can understand what's going on, that the things are functionally decomposed and, and all that type of stuff. But the bottom line for the code review is really to make sure that this is readable, reusable code that, that's going to work in the infrastructure and that follows a, at least the highest level standards where everybody's kind of working off the same set of rules. Right. And on top of that, like you, you saying reusable, John, made me think of another point too, is that there may be some things that aren't obvious to you because you're in the heat of the moment. So you may look at my code and say, hey, you're adding these things together in a specific way multiple times. You, maybe you should extract that as a method itself, you know, so I don't know, you're, you're spinning up IIS in like four different ways, why don't you just have a specific recipe that spins up IIS in a configurable way instead of doing it specifically every time? I'll have to say too, I probably learn more reading other people's code than just about anything as well, so oh, yeah. you know, the other thing you get by reviewing code is a, a different perspective. That's another benefit that we've seen for whether it's new people or, or someone that's experienced that comes to the team, like, that's just a learning experience. Like, when we onboard new people to the team, it's like, ask questions. Use this opportunity. We got the code up here. You got two days. Grab this line and ask what it does. And we start conversations. And even though we've been doing it that way for six months, we see a new perspective. We're like, we should maybe go a different direction. You, got, you have a new way to look at this. I mean, that was one reason why I really enjoy pair programming is you kind of get that feedback always. You get, you know... Like I was saying, hey, you can pull this method out and use it, make it reusable. Why are you naming this function that adds things together, subtract? It doesn't make sense. Um, have, you, you know. have you successfully pair programmed? Uh, like I've tried with varying results different times. Sometimes it works it, out. You know, it truly, it truly depends on the person. I mean, I found that with someone who is, for lack of a better term, on a parallel with you, you get a lot better results. I've worked with people who just were kind of unmotivated and just did not fit. You know, they didn't fit culturally to begin with, so they didn't work pair programming because they weren't part of, they weren't willing to be part of the culture that existed, and it didn't, it just didn't work because, you know, if two people are doing two different things, it causes conflict. But on the whole, there's just been, I, I found that pair programming was always much faster, and you caught problems a lot quicker when you pair. So on the topic of pairing, have you experienced doing kind of collaborative development across that wall of confusion, if you will, right? Like kind of having kind of an opsy person developing some infrastructure code with a Debbie person. Have you actually like had that exercise, Aaron? Both our deployments and our code, there's a, like one particular ops person that works here. Like we would stay late together and like, like work through problems and, and go from, from the whiteboard back to the keys and then to the system and everything. And it, it just really meshed. And I think that that's kind of what you were talking about, Trevor, is like if you get that person you mesh with, 
you can bounce around and like kind of pair on solving a problem. I've had other um, instances where it, it hasn't worked, right? But yeah, we've I've I've written code like sitting next to uh, most of the developers on my team, but I've also done it with ops people. And when you hit that magic, it's pretty sweet. It's wonderful, really. <laughs> I was supposed to start pairing with an uh, ops person, but um, he works for Chef now. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so. What, what 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 was something maybe that was surprising to you? Like right, so when you kind of maybe some notions you might have had about what it really what ops was all about, like that you kind of thought that's what ops was, and then when you started doing stuff with it, did you have any surprises, or was it pretty much what you expected? I think it's pretty much what I expected. I think I was surprised at some of the immaturity, at least in the Windows space, when it comes to some of the tooling and some of the inexperience when it comes to things like source control and code reviews and some of the things we've covered already in this discussion because you're so used to that you're so used to that in the in the quote unquote dev space that the fact that that didn't exist in the quote unquote op space you know I hate to do the air quotes too much but it felt like there was a certain level of immaturity that surprised me because in my experience the most technically adept people tended to be the ops people so I was just kind of surprised by what seemed like a, a, a lack of tooling and kind of a lack of experience there. Now, I granted, it's new. Ops people have traditionally just done one-off scripts to do something, or they might get a little more advanced, and, and that's kind of been evolving over time. But it was really, I guess, some of the immaturity at certain places. But generally, it was exactly as I expected, with that exception. I think for me, it was uh, the thing that was surprising was that I never knew that there was... like I knew that there was a line, but I didn't really realize how far over the line I'd already gotten towards ops when I finally started understanding what the ops role means. So, like, you know, I used to build machines. I used well, I mean, I still do build machines, but not professionally really anymore. I configure machines. Um, you're, you're maintaining your amateur status so you can compete in the sysadmin Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to be my new, uh, my new tag when I remember to do that. But yeah, I just, you know, I was adding users. I was, main, you know, setting up firewall rules. I was doing all this crap that you know was just necessary and I didn't there wasn't any ever anybody where I was working who was truly in that ops role probably the closest would be when I was working in the lab at Columbia where there there was an infrastructure team but they didn't have time necessarily to for lack of a better term babysit the smart lab so we had to do it ourselves so I, I we had a question question that came up on the Twitter. So Ben Cody asked, are there is there any type of incentivization or measurements that are in place to help bring your your dev and your ops together in your org? That's an interesting thing because there is and there isn't. It's a, it's always a mix. In a company this size, that like we have grassroots type of things that we put together, and we want developers and operations to work together. But then there's also top down type of things. So one of the challenges we're facing right now is I work at, we have multiple campuses here in Kansas City. I work at one of the campuses, and then the operations people are at a different campus, and that's like 15 miles away. So my team goes over to their campus one day a week, and they come over to our campus two days a week. And I don't think anybody, like, management has said that we have to do this. We do this because we want to be physically in the same location and humanize each other. So there's like, there's like incentives to actually... Like, make sure that we're collaborating in ways that, that's going to, like, you know, make things work a lot better. And, and we found quite a bit of benefit from that. But, yeah, the incentive thing, like, that's a hard one. Like, I mean, what would you measure? What would you, what would you say is, is, like, success as far as trying to incent people to work together? So we don't have anything concrete. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I wonder about that. Because, again, you kind of want to be able to show result, but... Metricizing collaboration seems awful. Well, that's and it's, it is, and you know I've seen organizations where dev and ops were pretty close together, or even kind of pushed together, and and other places where they were more formally separate, and that doesn't necessarily dictate the interpersonal relationships between the people, right? And that has as much to do with the cooperation as anything else. You know, even if, you, you know, you have two teams that are functionally separate, if the people that work on those teams work together, then you've accomplished the goal. And if you have an organization where, you know, dev and ops are working together on the same team, it doesn't prevent somebody from being a dick either. Yeah, you can't, you know, just, we've talked about this before, right? Like, you can't just, like, put everybody in an open workspace and expect them to suddenly be buddies. 
And no. by the same token, and this has actually been kind of a bit of a conversation, there's the blog post about, it's like, why you suck at technical interviews or something like that, and I'll put it in the show notes, that they've talked about this whole thing about hiring for, like, people that you, like, we'd say, you, you know, you need to hire somebody you want to work with, but that doesn't necessarily mean you, you should hire somebody that you want to be your friend, because that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good to work with, right? And collaboration doesn't necessarily mean that we're friends. And this was, again, I kind of think about this, like, actually, John, I consider you my friend now, but, like... When I think about when we worked together back in the day at the bank, like we worked together for years. We didn't socialize outside of work. It was okay. It was like we didn't have to go out on beer blasts and booze cruises and do all this stuff, and we collaborated just fine. And it's not to say you can't do those things either, but having this expectation that that's what collaboration is, is that everybody's like social, can actually be counterproductive, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, you asked that question earlier about, you know, what in your dev background helps in, in operations. And, you know, part of it is if you understand the other side, there's an amount of trust by speaking the same language. And I don't think organizationally, you know, being separate or being together is as significant as people trying to learn a little deeper and taking responsibility for things that are maybe not necessarily right in their job description. And I think when you have people that work with other people, kind of hand-in-hand hand and kind of try to really understand what's going on and get to the bottom of problems, that's when you have success. So it wouldn't be, it's, it's been too long since we've had a, you basically just did a call out to Lucis's blog post about that DevOps means never saying that's not my job. So mm -hmm. time I mean, for that. So, yeah. I think I mentioned this on our, our last episode with, with devs involved, but uh, there, I remember there was one person I worked with who like graduated with a degree that, you know, had some programming in it, like some in intense programming in it, who didn't understand what the RAM was in the system. Like, didn't understand it at all. Like, didn't, and then the other thing, they didn't know, like, what the boot menu was. They didn't know how to go into the BIOS or any of that. And I was just like, how have you worked with computers for, you know, we'll say five years, and you have no idea what, how to get into the BIOS or what the BIOS is? I was like, what? So I like not knowing. I, I feel like knowing some of your your basic keywords, and this is probably actually different from what I said. I think before I was defending them, but in terms of being able to communicate across the line, if you don't know the basic terminology, you're you know off to a bad start. That's one thing I've been blown away uh, with is the the amount of networking terms in the last two or three years that I now use in conversation with people. Two or three years ago, I had no idea. Like I mean, I. And ACL was like three letters to me or whatever. Like you know, I need. Isn't that the that you care? Machine to talk to this machine. Can we make that happen? Now I understand like what's actually going on between between those. So to end the suspense. The, oh, the what happened? What happened guy. in your data center when you had a key card? You know, just figuring out what the hell was wrong in the server when it would go down. Like I remember there was one time there the. Uh, the video card that was in the system, or as, as, if I remember correctly, it was a Quadro 8600, and it had just completely died, and we couldn't get our hard line to the server working because it was interfering somehow. I had to go into the server and actually pull it out of the rack, and actually, you know what? I actually put the server in the rack, now that I think about it. That was fun. It used to just sit on top of the rack. That was also interesting. But no, nothing, nothing catastrophic happened because I had keycard access to the data center, Matt. Thank you. This is the difference between you talk to developers and talk to sysadmins. Sysadmins have way scarier, more fun stories about all hell breaking loose. So if you want to hear awesome stories, go back and listen to ArrestedDevOps.com slash 18, the sysadmin show. So I'd like you guys, what would be the advice or, or tips you would offer to someone who's got a development background that wants to understand operations better, wants to have some empathy for ops? What are some of the things they could do? Talk to an ops person. Start doing things. There are plenty of resources online if you don't have an ops person to start learning. There's a, I think I actually have it bookmarked, and I'll put it in the show notes, but there's like a YouTube channel or something that's like how to learn Linux or something, and it's like from like this Linux guy who just wants to teach people who don't understand Linux how to use Linux. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a little bit of BS on your talk to an ops person thing because that's not really advice. I mean, I think it's the right thing, but that's, I, I'd like to, like, how do you talk to an ops person? Like, how do you 
like a human being? It depends what language they speak, man. Yeah. Well, I'm just sort of saying, like, like, I mean, the question, I guess, is, it's kind of a weird question. Like, somebody that's doing development probably doesn't just want to do ops. They have some specific interest in some specific thing, right? So I guess it's kind of hard to answer uh, the question. So maybe I should color it a little differently. So, like, one of the things we talk about in DevOps that, like, one of the squishy culture things, but it's super true, that's important is empathy, right, is understanding where the people on the other side of the wall are coming from. So I'm trying to, like, say, like, what's some tactical things? Because we're technical people. We like things that to do. So, like, what's a tactical way that if I'm a developer, and I like the ops people I work with, I don't think they're jerks, you know, I'll have a beer with them or something, but, like, what are some ways to speak their language in a way that I can start to understand what it's like to be an ops person? I'm going to cycle back two episodes again and say ask for help, you know? Will you explain to me what you're doing? What are you working on right now? The big, I, I saw you were fighting with, you know, I saw you were talking to the boss and he looked angry. What happened? Why did it happen? I usually ask, like, what's the most frustrating part of your job right now? Right. And I've been blown away by the answers. I'm like, I didn't even know that that was part of your job or that was something you had to worry about. I didn't know anybody had to worry about that. Like, I mean, just hearing a story from another person that, like, because sometimes it minimizes your problem. You're like, well... I have a lot of things to worry about, but I don't have to worry about that. Like, I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. that's always been interesting to me is, like, what's the big one that you're worried about right now? You know what? And that can lend itself to some rubber duck debugging, too, right? Because if you go to them and you say, like, what's the biggest thing you're worried about, they're going to explain it, and then that can sometimes help them solve their problem. You know, and I think the piece that goes hand in hand with that is don't ask the question to ask the question. Ask the question because you care. Yeah, listen to the answer and engage in, in possible uh, answers that could help them. Like, so, yeah, John, you're, you've been known to be a cranky dude sometimes. So, I mean, like, so tell people. So, if, if you were, you're in the middle of putting out a fire, someone comes up to you and says, hey, John, looks like things are stressful. What's going on? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to react? I mean, uh, if they don't come up to you and be like, so, what's going on? But, like, more like, hey, wow, this looks stressful. What's wow, going on? that looked like, that looked like a mess. <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably be a sarcastic ass, like I usually am, actually. So I guess, well, the lesson is don't interrupt think, them in the middle of a fire. But maybe the fire, yeah, maybe you say, hey, all, John, it looks like you just had something stressful happen, and now your heart rate may have reduced. What happened? So now right, how would Matt, you... That's, that's the empathy piece you're talking about. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't be the asshole who's interrupting <laughs> somebody. You know, like, I see you running around with your head cut off. How can I interrupt you and make things more difficult for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's a question without a situation, and the opportunities to collaborate are situational. It's when you have a problem. It's, you know, it, you will have problems, and they, <laughs> there will be problems that you have to work with other people, whether you're a developer working with the operations staff or vice versa, and those are the opportunities to ask questions about the environment that get you familiar with how the pieces fit together and to, again, kind of build that trust is you know, ask questions. Don't pretend like you know the answer when you don't know the answer. That's right. the, Nothing makes me crazier than when somebody feels the need to answer a question despite the fact that they don't know what the answer is. But if you work together, there's plenty of opportunities for people to work together. And, you know, that's when those things arise that allow you to, to see the other side and kind of get more familiar with what other people are dealing with. Yeah, I think it was, I want to say it was somebody who was on with us during the Etsy episode mentioned something along those lines where he just started, you know, he had the pager at night and would be, you know, they would have him be, you know, he asked to be responsible or was made to be responsible for ops crises. He held the pager. So when things went wrong, he was on call. And, you know, maybe they had somebody else to support him if he needed it, but, you know, it was going to go to him first. He was, you know, he was accountable for the fire in the middle of the night. No, you're, you're right. That was that was definitely on the Etsy episode. Yeah, they brought up, they said on the WebOps team, there was one of their developers asked to be part of on-call for the WebOps team to learn about that. And so if you'd like to learn more about that show was ArrestedDevOps.com slash 11. Um, it's one of my personal favorites. So one last question before we go into our checkouts. We, we asked the sysadmins last week, for what's their favorite crap-your-pants thing they had. And so we're still talking about ops. So what's your most badass war story that's operationally focused that's around that case? So, Aaron, you get to go first. Let's see. The first thing that comes to mind is 
I had just deployed one of our applications, and it was Friday, 5 o'clock, and I went out to dinner with, with my wife, and then I like get a text from my boss that, that his boss said the application is not running, and it's not painting, none of the CSS is painting. And I'm like, I'm sure it is. I'm absolutely sure it is. So I pull it up on my phone, I look, and it's there, or whatever. But um, uh, it was deployed in an HA fashion where I had two nodes. One of the nodes, the CSS was working, and one of them it wasn't. So I had to pretty much leave that dinner uh, and go uh, immediately try to get it back up because it was kind of a... I was like, how, how in the world is he looking at this at this particular time? I was like, how often does he look at this, and why is it Friday like while I'm having dinner with my wife? But, we, I mean, I got, it, I got it back up and running after a little bit, but it was just like, wow, right now. What about you, John? Oh, man. They all kind of run together. So many late nights, right? We had a storage array a couple of jobs ago that used to periodically just grind to a halt and pretty much stop responding and would take down everything. Like, everything was on it. The, the entire data center pretty much ran on it. Everything was virtualized, and all the storage was on the one host. And so whenever the thing would go down, man, it was a nightmare. We had to basically bring up the whole infrastructure. But, I mean, I don't know. Everyone's got those type of stories, right? What do you got for us, Nate? Um, so this is somewhat mixed app ops, I guess. Um, I released, we had a uh, SOAP service to do all of our, our app error logging. And the day before my honeymoon, I decided it was a good idea to release a new version of that, which essentially caused an infinite loop calling back to itself to log its own errors. And the plane lands in Argentina, and my BlackBerry starts lighting up. Uh, it almost caught fire, I think. This is going back a ways. And... Um, <laughs> You know, I had to do that emergency call to get that rolled back, and uh, that taught me to never do a release on a weekend or <laughs> prior to leaving town, for sure. People disappear in Argentina, but they manage to find you, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Trevor, you didn't get to tell a war story last week, so what do you got? Well, I was rebuilding all the computers for the smart lab. We, we merged a few XPSs together. So these are desktop machines, not servers, so less fun maybe for you, but it was pretty fun for me. And there were ATI, NVIDIA, uh, sorry, ATI 5770s, which were brand new at the time. And we put them in the new box. There was, you know, this was a 12-core i7 boxes with, I think, at the time, 16 gigs of RAM. And, you know, they were just beasts. We were putting dual 5770s in there. I get the machine up. I try to get the 5770s to install their drivers, and they just completely fail. Absolutely completely fail. And I call ATI, and they're like, um, well, uh, we don't know what's going on, but that's, a, that's driver's probably broken. Uh, you have to uninstall the driver. Then you have to download this third-party tool to actually uninstall the driver. And then you can install the real driver. I was like, really? Screw you, ATI. I am never buying another product from you ever again. Eventually, the machine did work, but uh, those cards were never, ever reliable. So I just have one, one quick story that's actually about someone else, but it's one of my favorite sysadmin ops panic stories. So back in the olden NT4 days, that just to, to put some context into it, one of my coworkers was in charge of our lab, like our development lab. And so what would happen was when machines would recycle out of production, they would get turned over to this coworker who could then use them in the lab. So what happened was so a machine had been, database server had been pulled out of production and given over to this person who we'll call RefJack. And he uh, was tasked with saying, okay, fine, this can be your thing now. And then, of course, and this, this kind of thing would happen. They, they came to him the next day and went, oh, my God, we need to get some data off that thing. We totally forgot. Can you, we need you to boot it up like real quick. So he, he calls me in a panic and he's telling me this and he's like, I plugged the storage array into this thing and it's not seeing the external data. It's not seeing the disk. It's not seeing the disk. And this was with those compact external arrays that would have like two disk subsystems that were connected to two different RAID cards inside the machine. So I'm we're kind of looking at it. Sure enough, it's not, see, it's not seeing it. And I, you know, kind of do the troubleshooting thing. I'm like, well, let's just make sure. I'm like, you sure the cables are tight? Yeah, the cables are tight. Cables are tight. So I'm like, well, I'm going to double check. So I checked the, the SCSI cables. And in his hurry, he had plugged the two RAID cards into each other and the oh. two storage arrays into each other. And uh, from that point on, for at least a year, I called him Loopback. 
So, <laughs> and I also, if we ever get him on the podcast, he can tell you lots of stupid crap that I've done too. So it's all fair. But let's move into our checkout. So at this point, our panelists will share with you something awesome, something interesting that they think you would dig. It can be a beer, it can be a book, it can be a tool, all that kind of stuff. So we'll start with you, Nate. Uh, so what I picked is something called Con Emu. I suppose that's how you'd pronounce it. It's Con Console Emulator, Con Emu. It's a great console tool for those Windows people out there. You know that the command executables horrible to CMD. It, it, this allows you to have tab windows. You can also do different types. You can do Bash and PowerShell. You can do different types of, of consoles. <coughs> Um, that's Con Emu. The links uh, I provided the link. It'll be on the website. It's just a great tool. You can have a PowerShell window open or a number of them, and at the same time have a command line open um, or a Git Bash or whatever. John. So yeah, I was trying to think of uh, some checkouts that I could share because pretty much all I've been doing right now is you know running the kids around to their stuff, and I don't think anybody wants to check out Wheaton Rams youth football as much as I do. So, but. <laughs> Jeff suggested that I check out Newski's Bacon, so that's going to be my my checkout. I also need to check it out. As you know, Matt, I love bacon about as much as anybody possibly could love anything. So uh, Newski's Slab Bacon is going to be my checkout. Awesome. That sounds wonderful. Aaron, what do you got? Um, the big thing I've been having people watch, because it just blew me away, is uh, Jez Humble's talk at, at ChefConf this year. Because we're trying to do a lot of organizational change right now, and he talks about, um, I think it was HP, and just how they, they said, you know, this isn't working. Let's do something different. And they, they spent a lot of time making their development just really hum again. So I've, I've just been blown away by that talk. I'm telling everybody to watch it. It is a great talk. And the HP LaserJet team, that, that story is one of my favorites, and it's probably like the fourth time that it gets name, it's been name-checked on this episode, because it's amazing. So Trevor, what do you got for us? Alright, so first and foremost, I want to tell everybody to check out Team City, because I got to play with Team City some more this week, and I just, I, I forgot how much I loved it, because I've been so bogged down doing other crap. It's just, it's amazing, the stuff that just does out of the box, and it's like, unlike it's, uh, competitor that is like a butler of some sort kind of sucks a lot. So check out Team City. Also, I found on Reddit today this neat little Visual Studio extension called Encourage, which is supposed to like... I installed it. I haven't seen it actually pop up yet, but it's supposed to give you little encouraging words when you are coding, like relevant to what you're doing. So I'm hoping that's as interesting as it sounds. And uh, as seen in Patrick Stewart's ALS... Ice Bucket Challenge. I've been drinking during the episode today Shivas Regal, or Shivas Regal, however you want to pronounce it. It's good scotch. I'm enjoying it. It's cheap. Speaking of which, I plan on doing the Ice Bucket Challenge that Matt brought up this weekend. So, uh, so we'll post that out. soon. Awesome. Okay, so my checkout's real quick. It's this app for the iPhone called Lumosity. It's supposed to be for exercising your brain. So every day, so you basically go in, you say, what are the things that you want to be better at? If it's remembering names or solving problems or not getting distracted. And then it gives you little uh, workouts, brain workouts that you do every day. I've been doing it for a couple of days. I don't know if I'm any smarter, but it's kind of fun. So that's Lumosity. It's in the App Store. I don't know. Maybe it's for Android. I don't know. I don't know these things. So, reminder, we have a newsletter. Yes, I didn't send one out this week about this episode, but you can subscribe to it at arresteddevops.com slash banana stand. It is the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes, when I remember to send it, and possibly cool news with DevOps. Also, don't forget that it's conference <coughs> season. Uh, we'd like to remind you about FlowCon, which is happening September 3rd and 4th in San Francisco. FlowCon is going to bring together technologists and industry leaders passionate about innovation through lean product development, continuous delivery, lean UX, and DevOps. We'll be exploring the role of culture, technology, and design in growing organizations that thrive in an environment of continual change. We'll be providing inspiring and actionable information for key decision makers responsible for products and services that depend on software. The full program includes speakers from Google, Netflix, Heroku, Nordstrom, SoundCloud, Macy's, HP, Joyent, ThoughtWorks, and IBM. The second day features an open space unconference and workshops from Don Reinerston, Mary and Tom Poppendick, 
Whitney Johnson and Sarah B. Nelson. Use the special promotion code ArrestedDevOps50 for $50 off at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Flowcon. And I want to add, I will be attending Flowcon, so if anybody else is going to be there, let me know and we can say hi or whatever. Remember, as we've talked about, O'Reilly Velocity New York is happening September 15th through the 17th in New York City. And it is the place where DevOps, WebOps, and performance professionals gather for a legendary learning and networking experience that explores why a faster, stronger web is no longer an option but a necessity. Hear from the best speakers in the industry who will delve into topics ranging from hardcore math and stats to monitoring, clustering, analytics, and organizational culture. Attend Velocity and you'll view your work, the technologies you use, and your organization in completely new ways. Use code ARDEV20 to save 20% at ArrestedDevOps.com slash VelocityNYC. Thanks again to our sponsors, VictorOps and Datadog, and to our loyal listeners. If you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you would visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We'll read our favorite ones on upcoming episodes. So far, our most favorite one reads a little bit like this. Am I supposed to read That's something? That's because nobody has posted a review. So please, go to iTunes and throw a review in there. The most recent review was in May. So yeah, we're begging for love. So thanks to Nate, John, and Aaron for joining us tonight. That was awesome. Be sure to check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com or at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We are always happy to get your input, ideas, feedback, or, I don't know, gift certificates, or I don't know... Pictures of puppies at shows at arrestedDevOps.com. I am Matt at Matt Stratton. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We are Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. Banana stand.